God has called us to be kings and priests, and one of the characteristics that we need to be kings and priests is that of courage. We heard that mentioned in the sermonette. King David was a shepherd boy, and he exemplified the characteristic of courage when he challenged the great giant Goliath with just some stones and a slingshot, but he knew he had the power of God on his side. And in the end time, of course, all of us need the character of courage. We heard in the sermonette that today is June 6th, 2015, and 71 years ago, 1944, was the invasion of Normandy called D-Day. The New York Times described the invasion this way, quote, On June 6, 1944, Allied forces, mainly those of Britain, Canada, France, and the United States, staged the largest amphibious assault in history of modern warfare. D-Day, or Jour J, as it's known in France, opened the final bloody chapter for the Western Allies in the defeat of Hitler's Third Reich. Involved in the initial assault were 156,000 troops, about 5,000 ships, and most appealing to military vehicle enthusiasts, about 50,000 tanks, trucks, jeeps, half-tracks, armored cars, bulldozers, motorcycles, and other assorted machines. Mr. Dawson gave the example of one of the recipients of the Medal of Honor, only four men in that assault, that D-Day assault, were given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Another one of those recipients was Patrick, or Private Carlton W. Barrett of the 1st Infantry Division. And this is what the citation says about his courage and valor. Quote, for gallantry and intrepidity, intrepidity, at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on 6 June 1944 in the vicinity of St. Laurent-sur-Mer, France. On the morning of D-Day, Private Barrett, landing in the face of extremely heavy enemy fire, was forced to wade ashore through neck-deep water. Disregarding the personal danger, he returned to the surf again and again to assist his floundering comrades and save them from drowning. Refusing to remain pinned down by the intense barrage of small arms and mortar fire poured at the landing points, Private Barrett, working with fierce determination, saved many lives by carrying casualties to an evacuation boat lying offshore. In addition to his assigned mission as guide, he carried dispatches the length of the fire-swept beach. He assisted the wounded. He calmed the shock, the shocked, he calmed the shocked, he arose as a leader in the stress of the occasion. His coolness and his dauntless, daring courage, while constantly risking his life during a period of many hours, had an inestimable effect on his comrades and is in keeping with the highest tradition of the U.S. Army. So Private Barrett saved lives. And God has called us to save eventually millions and billions of lives spiritually during the millennium and the white throne judgment. Even now, God has called us to witness to people that they can save themselves from the great tribulation to come. Our Christian example can lead to the salvation of others. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, 
1 Corinthians 7. So while military men exemplify physical courage in war and in conflict, God has called us to exemplify courage in spiritual conflict. And God will give us the ability to turn many to righteousness, as it tells us in Daniel 12, verse 3, uh, that God is going to bless those who are wise and turn many to righteousness. 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, shows us that our example can turn others to righteousness. And here's the example of a member, a converted member of the very body of Christ with a non-member mate. 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Is that possible? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? How? By being a light, by being an example, as I've mentioned to you before, that I know of cases where the man was uh, married to a non-member wife in over 10 or 12 years it was. His example made an impact on her, and she eventually was baptized. I know of a case where the wife had a non-member husband for many, many years, and I think it was, again, about 10 or 12 years. And after that time, the husband was converted. You might say he was saved or being saved in the process. And Paul says, how do you know, O husband, that you won't save your wife? How do you know, O wife, that you won't save your husband? We know also that God has called us to be examples, to be the light of the world. And that's the second, that's number four of the sevenfold mission. Uh, mission number four, be examples to the church of God and the world of Christ's way of life. We also can save lives by preaching the gospel. And even now, those who are taking warning as we preach the warning message about the Great Tribulation, and as the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 40, you don't need to turn there, but Peter said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. We're saying the same thing. And many are changed, many are being baptized, who are receiving that message and taking the warning. It says in Acts 2, verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So Private Barrett saved lives and exemplified courage. But true Christians, the saints of God, must also exemplify spiritual courage. But what are the same, sort of the, some of the characteristics of converted true Christians? What are the characteristics of saints? What is a saint? Have you ever met a saint? And what is the ultimate destiny of a genuine saint? And who are the saints of God? The title of the sermon today is, Who Are the Saints of God? Turn to Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1. To some people, the word saint might have uh, different connotations, but from the reality of God's calling and God's plan of salvation, it's a very important and vital designation. 
Romans 1 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, to all that are in Rome, Romans 1 verse 7, Beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there were saints in Rome. I've told you the story before, but I'll, I'll make it short. In 1973, when we were at the feast in Minehead, England, we had Grandma Meredith with us, and we traveled through Europe to uh, Amsterdam, to uh, Dusseldorf, Germany, to Paris, to Geneva, uh, Zermatt, and uh, on to Milan, Italy, and finally to Rome. And because Grandma Meredith couldn't hear, my wife wanted to have kind of a, um, an apartment where she could have access to Grandma's room without her having to lock the door. And so we were able to book such an apartment at the Cavallari Hilton in Rome, 1973. And, of course, it was a separate room, but with an outer door that could be locked. And so when we checked in, and it was probably about 11.30 at night, or very, very late at night, and... Uh, Grandma's room was number 668, and my room was 666, and I was shocked. Here, my first visit to Rome, and I am given room number 666, and I thought, oh, I'm not the beast, I'm not the beast, and I was really kind of shook up for a while, and then uh, the next day, we were sitting out on a patio, and I was just reading Romans 1.7, and the King James has a little differently, but it was long lines, To all the saints that be in Rome, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought, who are the saints in Rome? Well, my wife and I are the saints in Rome, and I took that as grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was comforted and at peace. And at the same time, I think God has a sense of humor. But we also, of course, as uh, mentioned, that the telecast today is uh, by Mr. Rod King on 666, as Mr. DeSimone mentioned in the announcement, so hopefully you'll get to see that particular telecast. Philippians 1 and verse 1, again, the Apostle Paul, not all of his epistles, but at least in these three epistles, Romans and Philippians, Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. All the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I turn over to Colossians 1. So when we're reading about first century Christianity, again we need to remember our sevenfold mission, mission number six, restore original Christianity and all that this implies. What were true Christians called and why? Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Saints were true Christians and true Christians were saints and are saints. And the Apostle Paul recognized them as such. However, the world has different concepts of saints. Last year on April 14th, Pope Francis 
canonized two previous popes and made them saints. Apparently they weren't saints before. Pope John Paul II, who served as Pope from 1978 to 2005, and Pope John XXIII, who served from 1958 to 1963. So now in 2015, they're made saints. On January 14, 2015, Pope Francis canonized Joseph Vaz, a missionary priest who had worked in Sri Lanka from 1687 to 1711. Talking about three centuries, more than three centuries ago, now this person is designated as a saint. One concept of sainthood is that one must be appointed such years after his or her death by the Roman Catholic hierarchy. But of course that's based on a false premise, a false doctrine about the immortality of the soul, that these individuals are still alive but they're in heaven. And so now we designate them as saints. The Catholic Encyclopedia article Canonization and Beatification of Saints states this, the worship of latria or strict adoration is given to God alone. The worship of dulia in Latin, honor and humble reverence is paid to the saints. The worship of hyperdulia, a higher form of dulia, belongs on account of her greater excellence to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So here they believe that there are saints in heaven that are praying for us, that, well, Christ prays for us, but really these are the saints that we have canonized. They pray for us too, and in particular Mary. Well, no, that's all a fantasy because Mary is sleeping in the grave. And so uh, is everyone else who's ever lived and died except for Jesus Christ. We must not be deceived by these false concepts of saints. Another popular concept of saints is the popular song, actually a jazz song, When the Saints Come Marching In. In fact, uh, it's one of the uh, common songs for New Orleans because the NFL, the National Football League team in New Orleans, is called the New Orleans Saints. And that's one of their their favorite uh, songs. It originally was a hymn, a gospel hymn, in 1896, uh, but today normally played in jazz style. Uh, Louis Satchmo Armstrong made it popular in his recording in 1938. And I think it was 1957, I saw... Uh, Satchmo, Louis Satchmo Armstrong in a concert in Albany, New York. And I remember it was a great concert. He was trumpeting and, and I was up in the balcony with my date and everyone was beginning to get in rhythm, putting their feet down at the same time and, and the balcony literally was going like this. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, we're going to have a huge catastrophe. But thankfully, Uh, He changed the beat, and uh, the balcony stopped vibrating as such. But uh, according to the St. Augustine Record newspaper, uh, Louisiana, of course, uh, popularizes when the saints come marching in and uh, gives this notation, quote, The melody is traditionally used as a funeral march. When accompanying the coffin to the cemetery, bands play the tune along with other selections as a dirge, very slow and ponderous. When returning from the interment, the band switched to the familiar upbeat or Dixie style of play. So I like the song. 
it is based partly on uh, biblical uh, references. It starts off with these lyrics. We are traveling in the footsteps of those who've gone before, but we'll all be reunited on a new and sunlit shore. Well, it'll be in the kingdom of God. Then the choruses, or when the saints go marching in, when the saints go marching in, oh Lord, I want to be in the number when the saints go marching in. Then it refers to some uh, prophetic references. And when the sun refuses to shine, when the sun refuses to shine, oh Lord, I want to be in the number when the saints go marching in. When the moon turns red with blood, I want to be in the number. Of course, that can't be at the same time. Prophetically, uh, that's a year too early when the moon uh, turns to blood and the sun uh, refuses to shine. But the final one is when the trumpet sounds the call. When the trumpet sounds the call, oh Lord, I want to be in the number when the saints go marching in. But what is that talking about, I want to be in the number? Let's turn to Revelation, the 14th chapter. Revelation 14. Well, certainly, as uh, we heard in the special music, I want to be there. I want to be there, too, when the trumpet sounds its call. Revelation, the 14th chapter, and verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on his foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of the thunder, loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So the song, when the saints go marching in, I want to be in the number, or say, I want to be a part of that 144,000. And here they are before the throne of God in heaven, where the four living creatures are, the 24 elders are seated. Notice the number 144,000. I received an email recently from one of our members who was looking forward to the resurrection. Almost, I don't think she knows, was thinking of the song at the time. But here's what she wrote me. Quote, It is a great blessing to be God's sons and daughters and to be called to be one of the 144,000 Christ's bride and to return to Mount Zion to help rule the world and help bring peace, prosperity, and the knowledge of how to live in order to receive eternal life under Jesus Christ, our husband. So it's going to be very exciting when that trumpet blasts and we will be more than marching in. We'll be transformed from mortal to immortality, from into glorious divine power and spirit. We'll be born as God's children. The Catholic concept of, of saints praying for us, they're already in heaven, of course, is not true. We know John 13, uh, 3.13 where Jesus said, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven. And then the John, the writer, writes in parentheses, That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So when John wrote this in the early 90s A.D., he was saying there's one person in heaven, Jesus, that is, who had come down from heaven. So it is God who determines who is a saint, not 
any church. I asked, have you ever met a saint? My wife and I have visited people dying of cancer on several occasions. We went there, of course, to try to encourage those people. And yet at the same time, we saw in them a depth of spiritual maturity, and we went away being encouraged by them. Perhaps we encouraged them as well. But even at the time, I would say, that person is a saint. In my own mind, thinking, this person has grown in spiritual character, and perhaps through this life-ending trial has gotten to the almost the perfection of godly character and maturity and love and the fruits of God's Spirit. Have you met such saints? My wife and I have. I turn to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, when we realize that, yes, we are physical, but our whole purpose is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and have him create in us his perfect righteous character and to have the faith that as we go through suffering and we go through those trials, that we trust that God is creating in us his perfect, righteous, godly character. First Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, Peter writes, let those who suffer according to the will of God, and some of us are, some of our brethren are around the world, what must we do when we suffer that way? According to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. I think I've mentioned that to you before when someone was very upset. Dr. C. Paul Meredith was an evangelist and uh, responsible for the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course. And I remember one time years ago when someone said, well, Dr. Meredith, why did God allow this to happen? And it was kind of challenging because of some trial or suffering one of the members was experiencing. His answer was, God knows what he's doing. We have to have that trust and faith that we know what God is doing, that he's creating in us his perfect, righteous, godly character. And the point here, of course, is that we are continuing to do good, as one of the other translations have it. While we're suffering, we still must continue to exemplify the Christian way of giving and caring and sharing and helping others, continuing to do good. But what is a saint? A saint is one who is holy. We'll get into a little more deeper, uh, a deeper discussion of that later, but let's first turn to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14 and see a, a very encouraging comment about our children. They're not begotten by God, but yet they have a special status. This is the case, again, in the context of an unbelieving husband, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. God gives special attention and care to a non-member spouse. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now, now what are their children? But now they are holy. God has set your children apart. You children have God's Spirit with you. And you're set apart for a very, very special purpose. 
But let's go on to the matter of the adult saints. Let's turn back to Leviticus 11. Protestantism uh, slanders or makes fun of Leviticus, and, uh, and uh, certainly we know that all of the rituals and uh, the washings and the oblations and all of the uh, rituals, the sacrificial rituals, are no longer required at all. And yet there are statutes and judgments that still, in the book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are still in effect today. And in the context here of what are clean animals and unclean animals, what does God say? Leviticus 11 and verse 44. He's mentioning all the kinds of insects and fish and uh, carrion and animals. And he says in verse 44, Leviticus 11, For I am the eternal your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy. He's talking to a physical carnal nation, and yet he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Eternal who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Repeats the same admonition, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. certainly puts a great deal of power and significance into the context of what is clean and what is not clean. Turn to 1 Peter, the first chapter. 1 Peter, the first chapter. First Peter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. You heard about doing away the doubts of our mind. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, as we just read back in Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, Be holy, for I am holy. So God says you need to be holy. Now, for some, maybe for our teenagers, that, that, that's, uh, well, I don't know, because now I can't have any fun. <laughs> no. Now, when we talk about recapture true values, you can still be holy and have great fun. You can still play basketball. You can still uh, run the mile. Or we just read in the paper the other day about the Charlotte woman who set a world record in the marathon, age 92, who out in California ran, uh, ran or walked uh, the 26 miles of the marathon. Her son accompanied her in 7 hours and 24 minutes at age 92. So... You can still be holy because you're still physical and you're still involved in a physical world. But you, whatever you say, as it said in Colossians and Ephesians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether it's taking care of um, your brushing your teeth or whatever it might be in terms of health care, 
uh, health principles, whatever you do, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus because you want to be conformed to the very image of Christ. Well, what is a saint? The Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words by W.E. Vine uh, realized that the New Testament, the word saint in the Greek is hagios, which means holy. In the plural, as used of believers, writes the Expository Dictionary, it designates all such and is not applied merely to persons of exceptional holiness, uh, taking a shot at the Catholic doctrine or to those who, having died, were characterized by exceptional acts of saintliness. And the other aspect of it, of course, is sanctification. And that's a different uh, hagiasmos, which means uh, sanctification, which means separation to God. We already read in 1 Corinthians 7 about the wife sanctifying the husband, the wife sanctifying the wife. So what makes a saint? Well, it's God's Holy Spirit that does that, and I think we might have a little perspective in the annual festivals that uh, are brought out in Lessons uh, 13 through 16 in the Bible Study Course. Uh, Mr. John O'Gwen did an excellent job in organizing and writing this. Uh, Passover season, God's people made innocent. So what he is determining here, give an overview, a big picture, that you have justification through the Passover. God justifies you through the blood of Christ. Sanctification, the second season, with the Holy Spirit coming into us. And then glorification at the end, at the Feast of Trumpets, when the last trumpet takes place, we're transformed into glory. So this is uh, just to show you the lesson number 14. Uh, Passover season, God's... People made innocent. Uh, Lesson number 15, Pentecost season, uh, God's people made holy, or sanctification. And then the festival, fall festivals, uh, God's people enter glory. So it's just an overview of showing the matter of how we're reconciled to God, that we receive God's Holy Spirit after, of course, repentance and baptism and the laying on of hands. Oh, a saint then is one who is holy. Let's turn now to some of the characteristics of saints. Um, well, First Peter 1, if we're still here in First Peter 1, look at verse um, 10, uh, realizing were there saints in the Old Testament? First Peter 1, verse 10. Speaking of the salvation of your souls, verse 9, verse 10, 1 Peter 1, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which is in the King James Version, which was in them, was indicating what he testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So it makes very clear that there were some in the Old Testament who had God's Spirit in them, the Spirit of Christ, as Peter calls it here, that were saints in the Old Testament. And, of course, King David said, Take not 
your Holy Spirit from me when his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. Let's take a look at some of the characteristics of saints brought out in the psalms. Start back here in Psalm 30. We'll just do a quick survey through some of the psalms. Psalm 30, uh, verses 3 through 5. The voice of... Sorry. O Eternal, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Verse 4, Psalm 30. Sing praise to the Eternal, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So saints are to praise the Eternal and give thanks. Psalm 37, 27. Psalm 37, 27. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore, for the Eternal loves justice and does not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. So God says He does not forsake His saints. That should be encouraging to all of us. Turn to uh, Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verse 10, basically gives the same promise that God will protect us. Psalm 97, verse 10. Psalm 97, verse 10. You who love the eternal hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. So thank God for his protection for all of us. Uh, Turn back to Psalm 89 and verse 5. Psalm 89 and verse 5. I hope this will be a characteristic of the Charlotte saints. Psalm 89 and verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Eternal, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. So we need to, again, praise God's faithfulness, be thankful for him. Verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. We know all the blessings that accrue from having that godly fear and reverence. We've given sermons on that before. Psalm 132. Psalm 132. I wonder when the last time was that you did this. Of course, people will do that at uh, sports activities, football games, basketball games. But uh, Psalm 132. And uh, verse starting with verse 8, Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O eternal, to your resting place. You and the ark of your strength, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Well, maybe you've shouted for joy in a, you know, in a basketball team or game sometime or other, but have you shouted for joy of God's truth or something you've been very thankful for, some of the blessings that God has given you. Let your saints shout for joy. In verse 16, 
I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. So God expects us to express joy in a special way. Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Sing to the Eternal a new song. Psalm 149, verse 1. And His praise in the assembly of the saints. And we do that every Sabbath. Number page, uh, sorry, verse 4. For the Eternal takes pleasure in His people. Remember that God answers our prayers if we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. He takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Uh, when was the last time you sang aloud on your bed? Uh, so most of the translations have bed. I think one translation has couch, so it's okay if you sing aloud on a couch sometime. But uh, if you haven't done that, you might try it, to sing aloud on your bed. Let the high praises of God be in, your, in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment, this honor... Have all his saints hallelujah, or praise the Lord. So these are some of the characteristics of God's saints. Let's take a look at some of them in the New Testament. Revelation, the 19th chapter, Revelation 19. We look forward to the marriage of the Lamb. I read this one note from one of our church members said she's looking forward to being married to Christ and being a part of the number. Revelation 19, very familiar scripture to most of us. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the white linen is symbolic of what we should be doing as Christians in our daily life. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're doing good works regularly, not for our own glory, but to honor and glorify God and to serve and to help. What other characteristics are revealed about saints here in the book of Revelation? Let's take a look at Revelation 5. And verse 6, Revelation 5, verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And of course, Revelation, the fourth chapter, gives the full description of the throne room of God. And every once in a while, I don't every time I pray, but I think about the rainbow about God's throne, the thunders and lightnings, the millions of angels that are there, the four living creatures, the seven spirits of fire, the sea of glass that is there, the 24 elders with their crowns, and the thinking of Christ glorified beside the right hand of God the Father. And he says here, They have these seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. 
Then he came, that is Christ, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having a harp of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here you've got this magnificent, beautiful setting of God's throne. And here are these bowls full of incense, symbolically the prayers of the saints. Do your prayers have meaning? Do your prayers actually influence God one way or another? When you read through John 14, 15, and 16, three times Jesus said, If you'll ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Ask anything in my name, the Father will do it. Of course, you have to do it according to his will. But think about your prayers coming up to God as pleasing. Now, I've been in some of these department stores where they have this kind of, uh, oh, very uh, off-putting, I'll just put it mildly, a a kind of fragrance that isn't a fragrance. It's just really uh, almost uh, noxious or obnoxious. But if you've been to Hawaii and you've been where there are these beautiful uh, pakaki flowers, uh, there's one that used to grow on the Pasadena campus called Undulatum. And you just walk by it, and the scent just oh, just blows you over. Just wonderful, wonderful uh, scent and fragrance. And uh, just think how how it must affect God to have all the prayers of the saints come up before His throne, and they sang a new song. So I, you know that He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth, as He says. So, Re- Revelation the eighth chapter. Revelation 8, and here we're just about ready to start the day of the Lord and the seven trumpets that are about given. And uh, then verse 3, another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So it's symbolic, but it's very meaningful, and it's real, and it's vital that your prayers do come up to the throne room of the universe, the king of the universe, the God our Father, who loves you and wants to please you, as you know those wonderful promises in Luke 11 and and the Matthew's parallel account. If you being evil know how to give Give good gifts unto your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11, verse 13. And then, of course, the parallel count in Matthew, uh, that God will give good things to those who ask him. So just think that the prayers of the saints have great meaning. And if you are a saint, your prayers have meaning and have power. All given, of course, in the name of Christ. Revelation, the 14th chapter, if you'll turn there, I asked one of our employees, what comes to your mind when you hear the word saint? She said, well, the Catholic Church, but that's not right. And she said, well, I think when I hear the word saint, I think about uh, true people who keep the commandments of God. Well, it's an interesting perspective. And that's exactly what it says here in Revelation, the 14th chapter, Revelation 14, verse 11. And this, uh, of course, is God's judgment 
on the beast and his image, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So saints are commandment keepers, and they have the very faith of Jesus. So we briefly discussed some of the saints' characteristics. They sing praises. They give thanks to God as a way of life. They're faithful in their service to God and the Lord. They love God. And as a result, he promises to preserve their lives and not forsake his saints. The saints reverence God. In Psalm 89.7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. The saints also shout for joy and sing aloud on their beds. And God will give them the honor of binding the wicked leaders of this world and stop them from their oppression, as we read in Psalm 149. The righteous also produce, the saints produce righteous acts, and they are living by every word of God. They pray intercessory prayers. They pray their prayers. Come up to God's throne as sweet-smelling incense. But there's one more major characteristic of saints and something that is very deep in our spiritual commitment and one that really, in a sense, tests our baptism, tests our original commitment to God. And that is, saints have given their lives to God. When you were counsel for baptism, the minister discussed Luke 14 with you about counting the cost, that you cannot be his disciple unless you love Christ more than you love your father, mother, sister, brother, and your own life also. And that unless you deny yourself, you cannot be his disciple. Unless you forsake all that you have and come after him, you cannot be his disciple. So it's a life-changing commitment that you made at that point in time. The world tries to save its life, but Jesus said in Luke 17:32, remember Lot's wife. She turned back to the society and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. There's no greater honor for a faith, a a saint, to die in the faith. I'll turn back there to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 13. The faith chapter talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham up to this point. and says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I turn to, I should have told you, hold your place in Revelation, Revelation, the 14th chapter. So we realize that so many of our relatives and friends and brethren that have died 
have died in the faith. And that is a high honor because the next second of their consciousness when that seventh and last trumpet sounds, they'll immediately be resurrected and transformed from mortal to immortality. Here in Revelation, the 14th chapter, is a comforting verse for those that have lost loved ones. Revelation 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. When I drive by a cemetery, I just think, all these people are resting. They don't experience pain. They don't experience consciousness, stress, psychological trauma. They are at peace. They're not experiencing anything. And, of course, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But you realize at this moment in time, the saints that die in the Lord are at peace. They are sleeping in Jesus as It says in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. And their works do follow them. I already mentioned about the Bible study course by Mr. O'Gwen. I believe it will be ten years ago, June 14th, that Mr. O'Gwen died. And yet his works still follow him ten years later. Turn to Psalm 116. We read this at the funeral services or memorial services, Psalm 116. Well, God has called us to be true Christians, to be genuine saints, to be faithful and obedient children of His. Psalm 116 and verse 15. Precious. In the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. So God knows what he's doing. As we read in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, that those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Precious, valuable in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints because the next step is going to be the great resurrection. Miss Deborah Lincoln Strange, Mr. Bomer, my assistant, and I, my, myself have uh, been tracking the deaths of ministers and ministers' wives. And, of course, our church members are listed in the Living Church News on, uh, in loving memory. So every time a Living Church News comes out, you'll find, again, some of the saints whose death is precious in God's sight. I just want to read some of the more recent deaths of ministers and ministers' wives. May 12, 2015, Maria Hildalgo de Carvajal, age 59, the widow of Sergio Carvajal, died in Chile. Mr. Mario Hernandez went down there to conduct the funeral service. April 22, 2015, Mr. Peter Fondabale, age 78. March 28, 2015, Fitzroy Greeman, age 64. February 10th, 2015, Mr. John Jacques Benny in South Africa, age 79. January 8th, 2015, our beloved associate pastor here, Mr. Bob League, 
age 82. September 11, 2014, Shirley Young, age 76, ministerial widow of Mr. James Young. May 4, 2014, Mary Warrington, age 89, widow of Walter Warrington. <clears throat> April 27, 2014, Mr. Vernon Dameron, age 83, elder serving in Russellville, Arkansas. April 27, 2014, Mr. Glenn Gilchrist from Washington, age 59. March 28, 2014, Mr. Donald Wood, age 77, elder serving in El Dorado, Arkansas. December 23, 2013, Lila Stein, one of our church members here in Charlotte, age 95. November 29, 2013, Cheryl Meredith, age 67. November 1st, 2013, Carl Clink, age 82. I'll just read a couple more. October 21st, 2013, Charles Knowlton, age 86, elder, serving in Columbus, Ohio. Precious in the sight is the Lord, is in this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So they're all sleeping in Jesus right now. They're not feeling any pain or suffering. And they're awaiting the glorious resurrection at the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet. But saints must be prepared to give their lives. Take a look at Revelation, the 13th chapter. Revelation 13. And God is going to return vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Through the Middle Ages and through all of the persecutions and traumas that have taken place, well, Revelation 13, 5 talks about the great beast power that is coming. Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? Revelation 13, 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and was given authority to continue for 42 months. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And all authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is going to judge him. And of course, those who die in the Lord, die in the faith, will be part of that judgment when Christ returns. I turn also here to Revelation 16 and verse 5. So does that scare you enough to say, no, I don't want to continue to endure to the end? Remember what it said in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, that those who died in the faith, that the world was not worthy of them. And, of course, if we want to be with them, we need to endure to the end and have that same kind of commitment that the saints have exemplified over the ages. Revelation 16, verse 5, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So God is going to judge them for what they have done. You think of the martyr Stephen, of course, in Acts the 7th chapter. 
Even when he was dying and God gave him a vision of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. And what did Stephen say? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And then the histories by Hegesippus and Eusebius that talk about James, the Lord's brother, who was thrown off the Temple Mount and uh, was then stoned. And he, of course, was converted after Jesus' resurrection. You read there in Acts 1 that in the upper room they were with Mary and Jesus' brothers. And James, the Lord's brother, became the pastor of the Jerusalem church, but apparently was martyred. And it was said that he, when he was being stoned to death there at the base of the Temple Mount, he prayed just as his brother had done, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are many other martyrs through history, and one was Polycarp. It was the Apostle John's um, servant and uh, follower. In the book called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, translated by J.B. Lightfoot, and abridged and modernized by Stephen Tompkins, edited and prepared uh, for the web by Dan Graves. There's one section where Polycarp, of course, was arrested. They came to his home. I won't tell the whole story, but uh, he asked for um, time to pray. And he told the, the host of the house to provide for the soldiers arresting him to give them some food. So he prayed, and then he was arrested, and they, they hassled him on the way to Rome. Uh, but then uh, he was put in the Colosseum before all the people and told to renounce Christ, which he would not do. And then they put him up on a, uh, tied him to a post and set fire around him. And there were his followers there from Smyrna who apparently recorded uh, the prayer. And this is apparently uh, a prayer that he prayed just as he was dying. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him with a distinguished ram chosen for a great flock for sacrifice. Ready to be acceptable, burnt offering to God, he looked up to heaven and said, What would be your last prayer? Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Apparently James said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Apparently this is Polycarp's last prayer. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and forever. Amen. When you think of the Apostle Paul, you think of of Peter and, and the other apostles who were martyred. And even our faithful minister, Randy Gregory, and six others who were killed in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, March 12, 2005. You read about that in a book called Martyrdom in Milwaukee. Let's turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation 20. 
starting with verse 4. We read this, of course, looking forward to our calling and our ultimate reward as kings and priests. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for their witness to Jesus. We normally just read over that. And yet, as Dr. Meredith has written in The Power of Religion in our current Tomorrow's World magazine, and of course just sent out, which uh, I just received the DVD um, last week. I think all of you uh, have received uh, the DVD on The Power of Religion. I realize that what ISIS is doing and beheading professing Christians and others around the world. John the Baptist was beheaded. And uh, we just think about, what if I were beheaded? Would I be willing to be beheaded? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who have not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So some of us may be beheaded, but in the next instance of our consciousness will be resurrected into glory. And what kind of a body will we have? Turn to Philippians, the third chapter. Most of you know that scripture, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 3. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he's going to change our lowly body, or actually the King James says our vile body, into his glorious body. And that will be a time when we'll feel no more pain or suffering. A time when we look forward to that transformation into glory. So are you willing to give your life to God? Have you really totally surrendered your life to Christ. We all did. We all said we did at baptism. We still have that same degree of commitment. Turn to Romans, the 14th chapter. Romans 14. And this is the reality, the consciousness that we need to have is brought out here in Romans 14. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Is that your character? Is that your belief? Is that your commitment, your reality, your awareness that you belong to the Lord? Whether you live or whether you die, you belong to the Lord because he bought and paid for you with his blood. Verse 9, For this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So are we still deeply committed? In the upcoming Living Church News, which will be the July-August Living Church News. Dr. Meredith 
has spoken about this, but he writes, Dear brethren and friends, how to face trials. He writes, It was the big picture that helped me keep my balance after Margie's death. As I meditated and studied and prayed over and over, I realized more than ever, God was still on his throne. The sun was still coming up every morning and the moon every night. The major prophetic events were still unfolding. Just as we had been preaching for decades, God was still hearing our prayers in many particular ways. God's Spirit was still available. So yes, we need to prepare for uh, tough times ahead and make sure that we're committed and that we're soldiering on, that we're making sure that we're keeping our minds with solid truth and with godly thoughts. We can face the trials that are ahead. Turn to Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3. At the same time, we have the promise of protection for the church, that is the Philadelphia church. Revelation 3 and verse 10. But there's a requirement, of course. Because you have kept my command to persevere, never giving up, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, I believe the Greek is petrosmos, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So it's the great tribulation. God has promised to protect those who are Philadelphians. We have two sermons, Sermon 771, the Philadelphian Perseverance, and Sermon number 794, the Philadelphian Mission, and then, of course, the DVD you just received this past week, the Mission of God's Work. So true saints are always surrendered to God. True saints belong to God, and they know they belong to God. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So as long as we're alive, we seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness, and we do God's work and we do God's will. We're living sacrifices, as it tells us in Romans Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We know in Matthew 24, verse 13, that those who endure to the end will be saved. But let's look forward to what the saints will be doing and the promises that God gives the saints for the future. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. Who is going to judge the world? We've read this dozens of times, but still get the big picture, as Dr. Meredith mentioned. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So the saints have a system of organization within the church and administration. Do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? How are you going to judge the world unless you're living by God's judgment, statutes, and way of life now. And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smaller matters, smallest matters, and do you not know we shall judge angels? So we have a great and high calling. The July-August Tomorrow's World magazine features Churchill, a lesson in leadership. 
uh, by Mr. John Meekin. And uh, he quotes this famous quote, Dr. Meredith has mentioned it several times, where Winston Churchill said this to Lady Violet Asquith in 1906. We are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glow worm. And so Mr. Churchill, in this context of a lesson in leadership, uh, certainly had some wonderful qualities. Uh, He also had some uh, vanity and other uh, human nature characteristics were not so uh, wonderful in God's sight. But we're going to be more than glowworms. We've already read that our vile body shall be changed like into his glorious body at the return. So we need to keep the vision of our calling. Mr. Meekin concludes that article with the following paragraph. What few today realized is that today's faithful Christians can be part of that glorious future. Those who repent, receive baptism in God's spirit, accept Christ's sacrifice, and live his way are preparing for future roles of service, roles that will see them reborn in the kingdom of God, not as mere glowworms, but as spirit beings shining with the radiance of God, serving a world where no one will learn war anymore. So as Jesus told us in Revelation 3, verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no man take your crown. He overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So we look forward to the last trumpet. We look forward to that time when we will be changed from mortal to immortal. We look forward to the time when we will go into the wedding. And uh, you might just turn there quickly to Matthew 25, verse 6, where we will celebrate. When we are changed from mortal to immortal, we will marry the Lamb. So it says here in the parable of the foolish virgins, or the parable of the ten virgins, it says uh, in verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. It's a sobering warning for all of us that it looks like 50% of the church would be Laodicean. And we need to make sure that we are going to be in that wedding because when the resurrection takes place, if we're transformed, we go to the wedding with Christ on the sea of glass and the door is shut. We go into the wedding. But in the meantime, we need to make sure that we are fulfilling the responsibilities of saints. Perhaps you're not praying enough. You need to pray more on your knees every day. And you letting the cares of this world that Jesus warned about in Luke 21 to distract you from the higher calling. We're in a complex world with so many distractions, information overload. 
And we need to make sure that we are humbling ourselves and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And turn finally to Revelation, the 15th chapter, Revelation 15. We look forward to the time when we will be with Christ and come back to this earth from the wedding to rule the earth in righteousness. We look forward to the time when we will be the bride of Christ. We will be born again children of God the Father. Revelation, the 15th chapter. He talks about our being on the sea of glass, verse 2. Mingle with fire and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. We'll celebrate by singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And what will we sing? Verse 3, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifest. Christ is leading his church, his saints, preparing us, the church, and the world for the second coming, the coming of the kingdom of God under the rulership of Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, brethren, let's make sure that we are repenting, that we are stirring up the gift of God's Holy Spirit, that we are fulfilling our responsibilities as saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And at the same time, the saints will judge the world. Let's look forward to the time when Christ returns and that we can help serve him Teach the whole world the way of life, the way of true sainthood, the way of abundant living. Praise God and make sure we stay close to God and stir up ourselves to be closer, to pray more deeply, heartfeltly, and to be very close to God until the end of time, until Christ returns at the last trump.